welcome to our 7 Investing Podcast. My name is Simon Erickson, and here at 7 Investing, our mission is to empower you to invest in your future. And we're going to be talking about some really futuristic things today. I'm joined on today's podcast by Max Chatsko. We'll be discussing synthetic biology and industrial biotechnology. And fortunately, we have with us an expert in the space. Joel Stone is the president of Convergence Advisors, joins us this afternoon. Hey, Joel, thanks for spending the time with Seven Investing. Thanks, Simon. And uh, nice catching up with you again after, after, after our last uh, interview. Yeah, we had a lot of fun with that one, Joel. We were talking a couple of years ago about how synthetic biology is truly becoming disruptive to the chemical industry. And so maybe we start this at the 10,000 foot level first, Joel. Um, there's a lot of R&D work going into these fields. And we've seen for a long time, uh, people using science to do really cool things, right? We, we harness physics for civil engineers to build buildings and we harness chemistry for chemical engineers to build chemical plants. But synthetic biology is actually using biology to create feedstocks for the chemical industry and a whole bunch of different applications. Uh, can you maybe start us off by talking about the R&D work that's kind of at the first phase of, uh, of the fields that you look at? Uh, certainly, Simon. You know, the, the interesting thing of, about synthetic biology, it's really the crossroads of combining uh, arithmetic, you know, uh, algorithms, uh, artificial intelligence, and biology and engineering, just all of those converging in a single area to solve the problems that we would have never thought we could have solved before on really you know, calculating the modifications that we need to make the, the organisms to have them make a particular product or a particular material. Uh, unlike what anyone has ever thought. That's really the, the magic of, of the uh, artificial intelligence and computational techniques being shared with uh, scientists and microbiologists and geneticists to be able to predict you know, what vectors you need to change within DNA or today even in RNA to have a particular certain kind of outcome. So much of the, the early stage development, which is now moving more into commercial stages, uh, a great example is if you think, you know, just five to 10 years ago, how long it would take to develop a vaccine. And people said, people early on this year said, there is no way we're gonna have a vaccine for COVID-19 developed within less than a year. And I said, oh, I think that's perfectly possible because what used to take years or tens of years can now be done in months or weeks or presently with some of the tech techniques and technologies, a matter of days and hours, which has allowed this massive transformation. And then taking that to the next step of moving it into the engineering and the scale up to actually produce on a larger scale. Uh, and how is that being done? Well, it's really the R&D people working hand in hand with the engineers and the scale-up people to actually begin designing the molecule and or the process at the bench scale. So the scientists really start becoming on the leading edge of doing work at the bench that's scaled down to the micro level that we may have never able, been able to think could have been done years ago. I mean, what, what is happening presently 
is what I dreamed that would be happening back when I got my master's degree in chemical and biochemical engineering back long ago <laughs> when nobody even knew what biochemical engineering was, nor did they even know what enzymes were. And now it's like everyday language. Yeah, so we've seen, you know, um, like like you said, with the vaccine and, and being developed in less than a year, um, a lot of companies in R&D, they'll use this metric of scientist years, you know, to develop a new ingredient, a new organism. Um, and it's pretty interesting if you look, even in the last five years, definitely in the 10 years, uh, the amount of scientist years spent on, you know, an asset has dropped from, you know, a very long time, measured in actual years to down to, you know, maybe months. Um so some of these bottlenecks are being removed from the R&D uh, in the lab, you know, uh, working through the, the lower scales um, of development. Uh, but now it's kind of pushing these bottlenecks further downstream, closer to, you know, scale up and commercialization. So uh, what are some of the bottlenecks that, that still exist for uh, moving this into, you know, actually commercializing it and getting it to the market? That is a very challenging question to answer because there's different, there's different levels of scale. So let's say if we're, uh, 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 the best example of, is if we're scaling up a vaccine, you know, as is what is gonna be done by Moderna and Pfizer here shortly, well, they already are. They're already producing product you know, to build up inventory and then Johnson & Johnson likely. That order of magnitude of scale is, is tens or hundreds of liters in fermentation capacity. So what I would typically think in, a, in the chemical industry or even in the food industry, that would be pilot scale. Uh, and there is so much known by that scaling factor to go from you know, a, a one liter or a 250 milliliter or uh, up to a hundred liter fermentation vessel and maybe a 500 liter fermentation vessel is actually in my mind is pretty straightforward, which is what's allowing this to happen quickly. The challenges that come into play is when you're moving to producing a food pro protein like an Impossible Foods or a Myco protein. You know, many of these companies that are making, you know, uh, artificial meats and proteins that would go into the food system because those are much larger fermentation vessels tens of thousands of liters or hundreds of thousands of liters. And then you take it to the extreme for renewable chemicals, you're talking about you know, multiple hundreds of thousands of liters of capacity. And the challenge when you go for, to that level of scale becomes, you know, how do you control the amount of cooling and the amount of airflow to these aerobic organisms, which are very dependent upon that for their metabolism and for the expression of the finished product, whether it be a protein or a chemical or, or an intracellular material. And you've also got the mechanical challenges of how do you agitate these vessels when you're the difference between a 10 liter or 100 liter vessel and a 250,000 liter vessel is enormous. And that's always been an engineering challenge, but uh, and it still is going to be, but with the onset of, you know, present day, you know, computerization and engineering design efforts that can be undertaken uh, to figure out those scaling factors, it's much easier now than say it was when we had to do it longhand, even just 10 years ago. Uh, so 
it's really dependent upon whether it's a pharma type of product, which is much smaller scale. And usually those are one use vessels. A lot of people don't know this, but they don't have a fermentation vessel that they're using over and over again. This typically is a one use vessel to allow, to allow you to operate under very uh, aseptic or sterile conditions to produce these, these volumes of materials as needed. Well, you can't quite have a throw a once through uh, throwaway fermenter when it's a 150,000 liter vessel. It's got to be stainless steel. It's got to be properly piped and equipped to, to be able to clean it and, uh, and sterilize it uh, between each uh, batch or continuous cycle. So hopefully that answers, uh, answers your question, Max. Yeah. yeah. So I'm sorry. Yeah. I was just, I was coming at it more from the uh, industrial side. So um, you know, in the early days, we had like the Solozymes, Amaris, Codexis before it, you know, went back to pharma. Uh, they were working on these big renewable bulk chemical uh, markets. So, um, I mean, how how close are those to being commercialized? Or it seems like the field's kind of pivoted to, to different types of markets now, right? With maybe better, uh, you know, higher profit margins, maybe more certainty, um, rather than these markets like fuels or um, some of the bulk chemicals that require just massive scales to make work. Like we're not, we still don't have a very good handle on uh, scaling up fermentation to, to those scales for these highly engineered organisms, right? Uh, that, that is, that is correct. And there, there has been a significant pivot, you know, to food proteins, uh, surfactants, you know, higher value kinds of, uh, kinds of materials. I mean, you've got companies like Geltor that's making collagen, that's going into, that's going into the cosmetics industry uh, by having a fermentation derived material rather than have it be from animals. And then a lot of the proteins that are being developed, you know, for the food industry, you know, good, good value of producing things for food. And plus, when you look at the pivot that's been made, it's really consistent with next to climate change, our next biggest issue between now and 2050 is how are we gonna feed all the people in the world? How are we gonna have enough protein to feed all these people and do it sustainably? Uh, because you can't, you can't raise enough uh, animals you know, to, uh, to be able to provide enough protein. And you move closer to agriculture by, by taking the agricultural feedstocks and being able to move them very quickly to producing high value food products without the amount of waste that takes place or, you know, typically for beef or poultry or swine, you know, a fraction of the protein actually ends up in the food chain for human beings. And that changes dramatically when you move into direct fermentation of products or producing uh, aquaculture feeds, which, uh, which fish are very efficient at conversion into protein. So that's why you see a big rise, a lot of interest in aquaculture as a way of, uh, of sustainably providing nutrition. There were other couple, a, a few other end markets we wanted to ask your perspective on, Joel. Uh, one of them has been kind of the energy industry. We've seen investment over the last couple of decades from big oil companies trying to figure out how to make biofuels, how to use different feedstocks, whether it's algae, whether it's sugarcane, whatever it is. Uh, but a lot of those have had kind of some some roadblocks and some hurdles in terms of the economics. Uh, where do we stand in the energy industry for synthetic biology? Is it making progress there or is this still a really difficult market for, for them to crack? Uh, there really hasn't been a lot of investment 
in synthetic biology as it relates to biofuels. I mean, you can look at, you know, uh, as an example, a couple of the large yeast companies have, have developed uh, better engineered yeast that can actually produce some of the enzymes so that rather than having to make enzymes, you can actually have the yeast expressing the enzymes within the fermentation to improve yields in producing ethanol specifically. Uh, a lot of activity going on. Uh, it doesn't really require synthetic biology. You can just use traditional readily available microbes that are found in nature uh, in a process called anaerobic digestion, which is basically taking any waste material, agricultural waste from animal uh, and uh, uh, food produce waste, a lot of activity looking at you know all this food waste that we have from both grocery store chains and restaurants and, and people's home waste uh, that can basically be converted into uh, to methane gas and then that methane can then be converted into what we call renewable natural gas, uh, which is pipelineable. So a lot of a lot of companies that are pursuing that. Most recently, Chevron uh, did a, a joint venture deal with a company called Brightmark, and they're basically uh, co-locating uh, co next to uh, beef and dairy farms throughout the U.S. In fact, uh, they just announced a very large project down in Florida that's going to be taking all the dairy waste from a, a large number of farms in central Florida and converting it into renewable natural gas uh, that'll make re renewable natural gas available to the population centers in the Southeast and particularly Florida, which is typically constrained and not having a much, much natural gas available uh, being pipelined into those areas. And then you've got uh, renewable diesel. Again, that's not necessarily using synthetic biology, but where I think we're going to see a pivot and see some things starting to occur is where synthetic biology can be deployed is if you can uh, produce microbes that can take ethanol and convert ethanol from existing ethanol refinery into higher value chemicals, just like there's, there's organisms that can take methanol and convert methanol into higher value chemicals or proteins. So I think, uh, and that, that's all done on a much larger scale. It, again, it's commodity. So right now, there's so much focused on these higher value markets. But once that technology starts to become mature and people understand, and I truly believe that when we look at the infrastructure that we have in place with agriculture moving into producing ethanol, it's the logical approach to replicate what happened in the early days of of petroleum refineries when they pivoted to become chemical refineries. And they're gonna see ethanol refineries pivot to suddenly start becoming biochemical refineries where they may take the existing feedstock of what would be you know, conversion of corn into corn sugars and be able to produce those to, to produce uh, high value alcohols, whatever, much like what I did at Green Biologics. We, we took an existing ethanol plant and we repurposed it to produce butanol and acetone using our specially uh, uh, designed advanced fermentation and the Clostridia strain that we had selected. And we were on the we were on the cusp of using some of our own equivalents, uh, CRISPR Cas9, which was a technology called Cleave, where we were going to modify the Clostridia to be much more efficient at producing butanol uh, as well as acetone. So I think there's going to be a of circling back to that 
as we as we start moving forward and as the and as petroleum companies become the pivot which they're already doing that announcements by bp by shell by chevron uh, all the all the majors have made uh, announcements that they're going to essentially be completely off of fossil fuels by 2050. That's pretty remarkable of, of having something we're now in approaching 2021 and they're going to be pivoting away from use of fossil fuels. Their only approach is going to be putting those investments rather than drilling holes in the ground, put, placing those investments in synthetic biology that I think we're going to see we're going to see that start to change here between now and 2030 and then you also have companies like Unilever that recently made an announcement that they're going to Unilever is is going to have all their products completely not using any more fossil based uh, fuels or chemicals by 2030 that's only nine years away for a company the size of Unilever that's pretty remarkable which means there's got to be some, some massive amount of investment yeah, sticking with energy real quick, just out of curiosity, I've always wondered what whatever happened with butanol. Um, it seems like a way better fuel additive to, to gasoline than than ethanol. It's got more energy density. It seemed like it was there was a you know there were a couple of joint ventures as you mentioned the Green Biologics, and then it just kind of fizzled and it doesn't seem like there's that much interest in it anymore. Uh, it seemed like it could also convert ethanol facilities to make butanol. So whatever happened there? Why did it lose? Uh, why did the industry kind of lose interest in it? Uh, some large butanol plants were built based on petroleum and with the butanol prices being very much suppressed due to low oil prices, it, you had to have a much higher uh, product, you know, uh, much more valuable product. That's why Green Biologics, we started moving into branded products with our butanol. And I'm actually working with two different butanol companies now, one Celtic Renewables over in, uh, over in Scotland and they're building out their demonstration plant, which will be starting up in in uh, Q, late Q1 of next year. And that's a perfect uh, uh, technology, completely meeting the requirements of a circular economy because they're taking distillery waste from the Scotch distilleries and converting it into performance butanol and acetone. And that plant uh, will be producing product in Q2 of next year. So looking forward to seeing that. And then another company I'm familiar with and, and working with, we are actually are doing a doing a presentation on Biofuels Digest tomorrow is Catalix. And Catalix is a catalyst technology uh, that allows ethanol to be converted into butanol, hexanol, and octanol, you know, the higher chain alcohols, which are much higher value. So that the lost interest in butanol for a fuel because you know why, why produce a fuel and sell the material as a fuel when you can make much higher value chemicals out of it. Uh, so that's that's why there was so much movement away from butanol, you know, and, you know because there was much higher, you know, it, it, as a performance chemical with very low purities, it could go into making uh, butyl esters. That required high purity. That you know, the butyl esters are used in everything from cosmetics to food flavors and fragrances. Uh, so why not why not go that route versus selling it for its fuel value? Hey, hey, Joel, what is the driver for um, 
for chemical companies or even consumer facing companies to make the switch on their feedstocks from what they're using right now. I mean, it, it seems like for a while there, it was all about the biodegradability. You know, Coca-Cola is replacing uh, hydrocarbons in its plastic bottles because they were biodegradable. Um, and then it seems like there's more of a focus on the yields recently, just a more efficient process. Is there something that keeps coming up, at least for those chemical providers or those consumer facing companies that's really driving them to make the change right now? The most significant piece that's driving that change is the branded product companies, uh, the quick service restaurant industry are all, you know, working towards ESG goals and sustainability goals. So they don't want once through plastic anymore. They're, 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 they're looking for biodegradability in those materials. Uh, and that's really the key driver, you know, pr producing products producing plastic material that can be biodegradable. You know, we used to always think as I was growing up, oh, we can do all this recycling, whatever. But the problem with recycling is you've got to have pretty significant sorting and you just can't take mixed use plastics out of a, from a landfill that is a whole demission different things and convert them into, you know, re, you know convert them back into naphtha or uh, olefins typically, and then produce plastics out of them. Uh, so, you know, I think we're going to see more and more activity, you know, from a polymer science standpoint, and really a combination of synthetic biology and, and catalysis. I don't think, you know, you know it's going to be very difficult to get to the ultimate endpoint just using microbiology, you know, being a true believer in it, I'd love to say it, but it's just so much more efficient to get part of the way there or the majority of the way there than use the the new technologies that are developed being developed you know using nanotechnology and in, in catalysts that's probably another from an r d standpoint another very big area of growth is uh, is nanotechnology to have very selective catalysts so now you can take the organism get a pro get a process quite a bit down the road and getting close to what the finished valuable material is going to be and then use catalysis to take it to that next level to end up with the finished product. So you've got the beauty of having a, a high purity material through biotechnology that can then be fed into catalytic chemistry and feeding high purity materials into catalysis. You now can have a great deal of selectivity because you're not dealing with the gamish of things in catalysis that you do when you're dealing with a, a fossil-based feedstock. You're, you can be working with a fairly high purity material uh, without having to worry about fouling uh, up of the, uh, of the catalyst. And then moving on, just one other thing, Joel, is we've seen a lot of these kind of chemical intermediary companies uh, taking the next step, right, forward integrating to be facing the consumers themselves, whether they're selling shampoos, whatever it is, they're doing the marketing and selling the end products themselves. I mean, whether we're in personal care products and cosmetics or food or clothing or whatever it might be, are you seeing companies that maybe previously uh, would define themselves as an intermediary chemical supplier more and more taking the step to being a consumer brand 
uh, based on ESG, based on consumer preferences or, or whatever else it might be? Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that, that's sort of the metamorphosis we, we t in business cycles we tend to go through over and over again. You know, the large companies quite often do, do not want to be the early movers. So that forces the smaller size companies to formulate their own branded products. I mean, the, a good example is you have a, a company like, uh, like Method that came out with, you know, their, their, uh, the biosurfactants and their soaps and detergents and whatever. And what happened, they, they reached a certain point and then they got gobbled up by one of the majors. As soon as they got it to a maturity level, then, and that actually ends up being their exit strategy. You get your product into a particular life cycle and branded to where there is name recognition. And then a, a large company like a Procter & Gamble or a Colgate or Palmolive or a Unilever or other branded companies swoop in and say, hey, that's a brand that we wanna add into our portfolio. And then that has happened time and time again, when you look back into the technology industry, look at all the people that were producing computers and, and, uh, and floppy, floppy disks, all the things that don't exist today because they reached a certain point in their in their life cycle that they ended up getting bought up by the larger companies that saw that it gave them a technical advantage. So that's the you know, that's sort of the 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 modern day upheaval that's happening. That's still the innovator's dilemma. It's still Clayton Christensen, where you have people who are innovating to have these disruptive technologies, but they're a disruptive technology not to ultimately be the survivor and be the big dog, but to be acquired and, uh, and to provide their shareholder value by cashing out with, with, a, uh, with a trade sale to a much larger company that can take them to, to the next level. In addition to um, using that as an exit strategy, I think that I always wonder why more companies, and they're starting to now, but why they weren't using that to kind of self-fund themselves. Um, so like we're kind of seeing Amherst a little late to the game, but, um, you know, they have issues with their bulk chemical business and among other issues, but, uh, their consumer brands are actually pretty good and, um, they're growing very quickly. There's obviously a high profit margin there. So I always wonder why companies didn't just start with consumer brands and then use that to generate, you know, lots of gross profits, maybe even operating income, uh, and then use that to help self-fund and offset the costs of, you know, some of these more ambitious projects that need, larger scales, you know, the industrial chemicals or things that maybe are less proven in the market, you know, cannabinoids, something like that. Um, so do you see that? I mean, we see that with, so like Amherst as an example, I think Ginkgo started their own uh, you know, JV and, and meat products. They kind of want to own a little bit more of the, uh, the consumer aspect of that. You have like bolt threads in, in clothing, for instance. Um, do you see more and more of that happening as well uh, from your perspective as, you know, yeah. consulting? Uh, yes, I do. And when I talk, when I, in my consulting practice, when I talk to companies and they are touting how great their technology is and you know, they have all these scientists, I said, well, that has no value. And, and your IP has absolutely no value unless it becomes a commercial product. And, you, and I think companies through all the lessons learned of seeing the number of failures, they have all pivoted in, in their business strategies, you know, from, you know, not just looking at how cool their technology is and their IP portfolio, but looking at you know uh, strategic collaborations like Amherst has done in the cosmetic industry with some of their products. Uh, they've now moved into CBDs. 
you've got the Zymergen, you know, uh, Hardring, you know, for their film technology with uh, one of the Japanese firms to where, you know, they're looking at how can they have their technology ultimately oriented into, into having a branded product. Uh, we did the same thing at Green Biologics. We said, hey, you know, if we're gonna, just gonna sell butanol and acetone, we're not gonna be able to survive. So we, we launched our own branded uh, odorless and, uh, and uh, smokeless uh, charcoal lighter fluid. And ultimately that ended up being licensed to the big dog in the world, Clorox, you know, to have Ecolite, which was going to be a replacement for Kingsford. So I think uh, that's going to be the ongoing the ongoing trend. Uh, you mentioned Ginkgo. You know, Ginkgo's. You know, Ginkgo is basically the technology company, but they're spinning off companies like Motif, which is their food the food ingredient company, uh, where they can bring in executives that aren't focused on R and D, but they're focused on commercialization. You know, they know the branded product industry. They know how to they know how to figure out how to raise money, to commercialize, whether it be through contract manufacturing or raising money to do their own bricks and mortar to build out their own facility. So I think you know, in, in order to move synthetic biology forward, we're going to see more and more and more of that uh, happening. You know, Moderna Moderna had to partner with other companies to be able to 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 have a manufacturing platform for their product. You look at Pfizer, Pfizer partnered with BioNTech over in Germany uh, because they alone didn't have the capability to commercialize their product. So I think, you know, that's gonna be, that's the wave of the future as far as, you know, it's time to market, you know, uh, you know because you, you're, the burn rates, even though the, there's significant cost reduction of using synthetic biology to get something done in a year that used to take 20 years to do. I mean, that's saving billions and billions of dollars, but it's still in the billions of dollars to still get a product you know, to, to the commercial stage. Uh, and, and nowadays with very limited contract manufacturing capability for the non-pharma kind of products, the food ingredients, uh, that, that's gonna require some investment in bricks and mortar, new fermentation capacity uh, here in North America specifically. There's quite a bit in China uh, that's available quite a bit in Europe, but when you look at fermentation capacity for scaling up so much of what's being developed in North America, there is a, a big void uh, of any kind of capacity to take those companies to the next level. Yeah, Simon and I were talking about that the other day. I'm, I told him I'm really waiting for a, a toll manufacturer who, rather than going full vertical, that some companies are kind of forced to do. Um, you know, there's a toll manufacturer that comes out and that's their business. You know, they're helping scale up manufacturing for uh, for these companies, whether it's an industrial chemical or brand. Um, and I, that would be a very exciting business to me. So, well, back when uh, back when Simon and I met at the bio conference, uh, I spent two years. Uh, be, uh, before going back into my consulting, looking at doing just that, building out a very large uh, contract manufacturing uh, facility. Uh, but it was just very hard at that time, you know, to raise any money, you know, because venture capital doesn't invest in manufacturing capacity. They're looking for it. And private equity and infrastructure funds, they want to invest in, in a big way, but they want to be in control and own it. So you're sort of in between, you're sandwiched in between those who want things done one way and those who want things done a different way. And you go, okay, how could I just get a facility built 
because I become an insurance policy for the VCs and the industrial and Syntec bio companies because they need a place, they need a home to be able to produce their products, both develop them further as well as the commercial manufacturing. Uh, and you need that commercial manufacturing you know, you're trying to beat the clock, you've got a product going to a branded product company, they're not gonna do a product launch within and change their labeling and change how they're gonna market their product unless they know that they're gonna have a sustainable supply. Because in, in branded products, what you don't wanna do is you don't wanna false start. You don't wanna make an announcement, we're gonna have all this, this whole new wonderful bio-based product and then people start buying it, the demand continues to increase, and you go, oh, whoops, we can't quite supply. Uh, and, that's, and that's becoming some of the challenges with the, uh, in the food, food protein areas uh, with some of the companies that are producing, uh, you know, the replacement beef and chicken, you know, you know, how do they continue to ramp up to make that amount of product available? And it's created even more stress because they've all pivoted, they were, so, sort of slowly ramping up because they could sell stuff through the restaurant chains. But guess what? There's no restaurant chains. There's no restaurant business left in North America. So they all had to pivoted, all had to pivot during COVID-19 to say, how are we going to repackage our product? I saw an uh, interview with, uh, with Beyond uh, Meat. They said, wow, we didn't know how much of a challenge it was to, re to pivot our entire business to have retail packaging and the logistics and moving stuff into resale, retail stores to sell their product. And same thing for Impossible Foods. <clears throat> Joel, you were mentioning Beyond Meat, you know, the alternative meat industry is something that's really catching on out there. In, in all the years that you've been doing this, I, I wanted to ask you, what are a couple of things that you find is really innovative and really futuristic that are that are taking place in your industry right now? Certainly. Well, probably the most significant uh, thing that's taken place within that industry is a combination of formulation and application uh, capabilities uh, in food ingredients. Uh, because the, the biggest challenge in producing a food product is not just producing a protein, but producing something that has the appropriate texture and flavor profile. And that takes years and that's flavor chemistry, textural chemistry, it, it's really material science on steroids. So what these companies have done, they've been able to say, well, let's, let's combine the biotech side with the food formulation and application, all the way through to meeting certain flavor and textural profiles, all the way through to having you know, chefs involved with testing product to say, yes, this tastes exactly like the animal type of product. So, and, and Beyond Meat did a real good job of that. Beyond Meat really isn't a, I don't consider a synthetic bio company, except they're using they're using the best of the best as far as agricultural protein, starches, whatever, and the formulation of those materials to give the right texture and flavor profile. Impossible Foods is doing some of the same thing. Uh, of course, they've got their, their magical fermentation product is heme, but now you've got uh, you know, many, of the, many of the companies that are producing uh, milk products, uh, egg products, uh, uh, cheese products, 
that are you know using synthetic biology those those guys are all on the leading edge whatever the 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 organism platform that they've selected to be able to express these certain types of uh, types of proteins that again they end up in many cases they get added in with other agricultural materials become a combination of synthetic biology related, related products as well as agricultural products uh, and that that's probably going to be the trend within the food industry because uh, it's hard to really meet the textural properties you know, with a fermentation drive material. Probably the closest you can get is some of the mycoprotein products that are uh, basically are fungi that have sort of certain fibrous types of properties that can offer texture, but even those, they, they, be up, they become a partial ingredient in a much larger picture using other agricultural materials to, to really provide the entire package that is, becomes very difficult for a consumer to tell the difference between whether it's beef or uh, artificial beef or a chicken pa or a chicken patty or real chicken or fake chicken, the same thing with sausages, just across the board. But you look at some of the, you know, the new th things being developed in, uh, in egg replacement, milk replacement, uh, which, are, which, which are pretty significant, I find pretty interesting, but you know, with, with, in hearing the interviews of some of the founders in those companies, they very readily say, look, it's, it's taken us five to six years to come up with the right formulation. We've been working at the formulation chemistry of this. And, and now that's becoming more predictive because you have, you have ways that you can measure texture. You have ways that you can measure flavor you know, with new techniques, new technologies that were leading edge you know, about seven years ago. But now you know, with, with artificial intelligence and and data management, you can just manage massive amounts of data for measuring texture and flavor and say, okay, what's, what, what elements are really allowing us to, to deliver that appropriate texture and that appropriate flavor? And, many, and in many cases, from a sensory standpoint, even smell. You know, when, uh, when I was working for Opta Food Ingredients, we had a specially designed uh, testing kitchen where smell was just as important as flavor and texture uh, to put the whole the whole gamish things together. That must have been. But now that makes yeah it makes me feel old now because uh, because the techniques they have today look, make the stuff we were doing ten years ago look like antiquity. Sign me up to work in the uh, the smell kitchen. I'm all for that. That's great. That sounds like a fun job. Actually, I could go for that one. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I would interesting. There's a lot of really cool things going on in food. Um, I remember, yeah, like you said, years ago, I mean, some of these companies are still out. Like uh, today it's called Perfect Day, but I think it used to be called Moo Free. They're the ones uh, working on, you know, milk. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's a cool product. Yeah, that has a, a lot of potential yeah. if that works. Um, so outside of food, though, what, what, maybe, uh, what are some of the markets you think would uh, be the first to have some more successes here and really uh, kind of push this into, you know, the, the public conversation? I think the area of surfactants is, is very interesting, and that's being pushed even harder with uh, trying to come up with uh, with bio-based or natural-derived surfactants that can replace some of the fossil-based surfactants and some of the surfactants which have some pretty un unfriendly, you know, attributes that are produced out from uh, from uh, palm oil and palm oil extracts. So I think that's a an area high-value area something 
that is needed on the industrial, institutional, and home side of things. When you look at that whole area of HINI, it's massive amount that's going on. And, and I, the announcement I mentioned earlier by Unilever is going to push that probably at a lot faster rate of people you know, ha having the market needs, someone who wants to wants to include new and different types of materials in their household cleaners or institutional cleaners uh, and detergents uh, that are also you know, environmentally more friendly as far as well, when they're disposed of, you know, how do they break down easier when they hit the wastewater treatment plants, et cetera. And then the other areas probably is, uh, is, uh, is you know, human skin care and the cosmetics area, you know, with, uh, with things like what gel tour is doing with the collagen replacement to replace animal collagen with a fermentation drive material. I think there's a lot of interesting things that's going to go on with being able to take uh, bio-based chemistry, uh, bio-based materials, and produce uh, specialty esters that presently have to probably be you know, extracted out of uh, out of uh, fruits, vegetables, or botanical kind of materials. High value material, not a lot of volume, but very high value. Uh, that when you produce those via fermentation and combine several different fermentation materials to produce a molecule, it can still carry forward being able to have a natural label, label because it was produced naturally via fermentation. And then a lot of the human nutritional kinds of products, you know, the most notable that has become, you know, very, uh, very popular uh, recent uh, kombucha, you know, with the developed in Japan, you know, the, the fermentation drive, I see, see bottles of all this, I go, who in the heck is paying three dollars and fifty cents a bottle for this stuff? <laughs> but they are because it, it 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 is a healthy kind of material and and uh, and use of synthetic biology. Uh, a lot of work sort of going on behind the scenes right now on uh, on microbiome, you know, microbiome biome for human uh, gut and, nutri and nutrition and healthiness and the studies that are being done that say the the that many of the diseases, even including cancer that occur in human beings, many times starts in gut health and being able to appropriately manage gut health. But that also carries forward into animals, gut health in animals. And then you've got companies like, uh, like Indigo and others that are, that are making microbes that can return soil, ret return the the microbial load back into the soil that got wiped out with all the overuse of herbicides and insecticides and, and fertilizers to really return the organic load that and, and healthy organics, which is produced by a lot of anaerobic bacteria that can now be replaced in the health in the soil. And those are very important because those types of bacteria uh, and the peptides uh, that they produce, and in some cases, organic acids, but they themselves act synergistically with the root system of plants. So they can, they're actually finding that they can great, greatly reduce the micronutrient that's, that are added in fertilizer additions because of, it allows the root uptake to be such much more efficient. So you have less loss and runoff because the the, micro, the microbes can affix nitrogen, they can affix phosphorus, you know, all these different components 
it used to, we would just over apply it onto the farmland and then we'd end up with all of the stream runoff. Uh, and when you look at the agricultural improvements that can be made, that's, that is big business. And you've got some of the, some of the large companies, uh, the, the buyers, the Syngentas, the Monsantos and others of the work that are investing in those. So you've got companies like, uh, like, uh, Arbion down in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, that's working a lot with uh, with some of those organisms and also various kind of fungicides. You know, naturally occurring materials can be placed, you know, on fruits and vegetables uh, to reduce spoilage. And some of the coating chemistry that I think is going to be developed. We got uh, one of the the fourth largest money raise. You know, uh, last year was uh, last year was a uh, no it was a the first half of 2020, the fourth largest money raise was $250 million by appeal. And appeal is a coating that allows shelf life of vegetables and, uh, and fruits to be sustained over a much longer period of time, which is uh, pretty interesting, a company like that, that uh, raised that much money. So there's in the likes of the Impossible Foods and the Modernas, you know, I mean, $250 million for a, an early series raise is, that's a, that's a pretty good raise. <clears throat> uh, Joel, we are uh, three engineers that all have some kind of allegiance to the chemical industry here. So this is clearly another two beer conversation for the three of us sometime. Uh, but for our audience, you know, that is individual investors, it's seven investing here. Are, are there are there a handful of companies, maybe just two or three companies that that you think are no brainers from this trends, these trends that you see developing out there that are going to be big winners from everything we've discussed here on the podcast? Public or private well, companies? You're you're stretch you're stretch you're stretching my memory on that because I was just I was just looking at the top list of public companies. Uh, there, there's a fellow uh, that has his own index. Uh, that has a, sort of a listing of all the companies, but uh, and some of those that are in there that are that that are public. Of course, you got Moderna. That's sort of a no-brainer with their uh, with their COVID nineteen. Uh, I think Amaris is going to be on the upswing. Amaris is a public company, uh, so it's it's really a matter of you. Know, I tend to focus on the industrial biotech, the non-pharma companies as opposed to the pharma. But uh, but I, I could certainly uh, I could shoot you over you know a, a list post our our session today and that might be something it might be something we could have a follow up call on and just discuss you know some of the some of the present companies that are in the public domain uh, and of course there are opportunities some there are actually some pretty opportunities for those that want to really research and get involved in early stage would be uh, looking at some of the companies that are very early stage that are doing crowdfunding. And there are some of the crowdfunding platforms which are, which are strictly focused on, uh, on uh, ESG investing and to some extent uh, industrial biotech. I mean, the company I'm working with, uh, the client company I'm working with over in Scotland, we, uh, you know, in order to uh, finish up the uh, demonstration plant, we, uh, decided to do a crowdfunding round and we went out with hopes of raising 1.75 million euros and 21 days into the money raise with eight days left were over 3.2 million wow. pounds. 
a little bit because people looked at it and they would go, wow, th this company's for real. They're going to expand. They're going to build additional facilities. It's a true circular economy, ESG investor. And it's pretty easy to sort of look at the investments that companies like BlackRock and, and other large funds are doing because they've basically, they've pivoted to say they're no longer going to do in, in investing in the, in the normal energy sectors. They're moving to having a scorecard for ESG investing. And there's a lot of resources to, to just look at ESG investing and which are the companies that probably need to be looked at if that's one of your criteria. And that, that's becoming one of my criteria for investments is, you know, what, what's the scorecard from an ESG standpoint? It definitely is a trend that's taking shape right now in, in our world. Uh, Max, any other final questions or thoughts for Joel to close us out here? Stump me. <laughs> should have um, said that <laughs> no i'm I'll, I'll let him off easy how about that but uh it was a great talk i appreciate it. i'm sure we'll have you uh back on a couple more times hopefully no it's exciting to talk about this area it's uh you know we're this next 10 years you know with uh, with what we've seen going i think covid has sort of pushed us along with having bit, you know, the technology things to where what we said we couldn't do before, we're proving it just like in on our today's session. You know, we're not doing this live face-to-face -face across the table, we're doing it as a Zoom conference. Uh, and that becomes enabling for uh, collaborations across the board with, with companies that normally probably wouldn't collaborate on very early stage R&D. And those collaborations is really what allowed so much of the, the things that are going on with COVID-19, it really it, it really sent a wake up call to say, hey guys, you've got to collaborate cross, cross platforms. And there's probably a lot more sharing of information on this messenger RNA uh, being done with the companies that are being successful, you know, because there's plenty of space for multiple companies. I mean, the, the market doesn't need to be controlled by one company. There, we have so many problems to solve, you know, having uh, more and more collaborations. And I think that's going to be another another thing, uh, fallout that we're gonna see within these different uh, companies, you know, going after surfactants or food proteins. We're gonna see more and more of them probably cross-platform and say, look, the sum of, you know, if we add one and one together, we can end up with five, and then that five could end up being a public company that could be very successful. And I think that that's, that in my, that in my mind, in my vision, is what I think we're going to see happening in the next uh, between now and 2030. To be for for any of the young people that are interested in industrial biotech and synthetic biology and the engineering that goes hand in hand with that, this is going to be a renaissance ten, 10 years for people that really want to play a role in it. Which is uh, which is why I'm doing consulting. I see that this is helping younger people figure out. What does it really take to build something? Because most most people never build anything. You know, it, it's one thing to say, "Oh, I can build, I can build a a, a tree fort in the backyard." It's another thing to build a hundred and fifty or two hundred fifty million dollar uh, fermentation facility. Let me tell you, it's, it's a lot of energy and effort, but it's fun when you see it's done. You, you just look at it and go, "Wow, never thought I could do that." Absolutely, Joel. I'll close it out with actually a quote from you here. You said that we believe that the present industrial and consumer trends are resulting in a reinvention of the specialty 
performance chemical industry to deliver solutions using industrial biotechnology. I think that wraps everything here together up very, very nicely. Uh, once again, for everyone watching, Joel Stone, the president of Convergence Advisors. Uh, Joel, thanks for joining me and Max at Seven Investing here this afternoon. Well, thanks for thanks for the invite, Simon, and thanks uh, thanks Max as well. And look forward to uh, you know, having some more of these as time goes on to to you know get the messaging out. And it's all about educating the masses. And thanks for using that quote because I use that with people because it's it's really about educating people about what is synthetic biology. And I think people are going to going forward they're going to grasp this more and go look people. You know, early in the year, we're saying there's no way we could have a vaccine, and lo and behold, you know, unless uh, unless we have an inhibitory, you know, matters from a political standpoint, inhibit the rollout, we could very well have some of the first people, you know, having vaccines uh, before Christmas, which would be, in my mind, would be fantastic for well, for not just North America, but pretty fantastic for the world. I certainly agree with you on that one, Joel. Uh, thanks again for joining Max and I. Thanks for everyone for tuning in. Once again, we are here to empower you to invest in your future. We are seven investors. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.